Welcome to Recover Strong, a show that will transform your recovery from an eating disorder by helping you go from theory to practice to mastery. I'm Jessica Flint, founder of Recovery Warriors, and you are listening to our podcast channel created specifically for you in all the stages and phases of recovery. I want to celebrate you for carving out this special time to learn new skills, tools, and get the inspiration you need to recover strong. Let's get started. I'm your host, Andrea Wells. And just like you, I understand what it's like to live with an eating disorder and be held back by body image struggles. The recovery journey is ongoing, and we're all in it together as we learn to embrace new behaviors and new thoughts day by day. Join me as I connect with eating disorder experts and thought leaders to give you the tools, resources, and strategies you need to recover strong. Today is a five things feature where you get more recovery wisdom in less time. And each week we talk about five things related to recovery. Today's topic is five important things intuitive eating counselor Joni O'Donnell wishes she knew earlier in recovery. And I'm joined here by Joni today. She is an alumni of the Courage Club here at Recovery Warriors, where years ago she made huge strides in healing from eating disorder. And in fact, she has come so far that she is now an intuitive eating counselor and helping others to recover. We love a full circle moment. That's beautiful. Joni also has a master's in education, multiple coaching certifications, and decades of lived experience battling food and body. She has so much wisdom on the recovery process, and I am so glad to have her here today to share her experience because sometimes hindsight gives you the best clarity. So she's here today to share these five important things that she wishes she knew earlier in recovery to help you along in your journey. Welcome, Joni. Hi, Andrea. Thanks so much. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here, um, especially that you said the full circle moment. And that's exactly how I feel, like coming back to my Courage Club roots. And I'm really happy to be here. I'm really thrilled to be able to share what I've learned along the way. Um, you know, and everybody's journey is different. So I hope the things that I have to share might resonate with some people and we'll go from there. Well, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So being so further along in, in the process, it's great that you have some insights to help people with. And just for listeners who don't know, can you give a brief description of what an intuitive eating counselor is? What type of work do you do? So um, so it's interesting because I think intuitive eating counselor is a very broad uh, descript- is a very broad statement. And somebody who is an intuitive eating counselor can be either uh, a registered dietitian, a therapist, like lots of other professions come into the intuitive eating world. I come from a coaching perspective. So as an intuitive eating counselor, and I'm also a non-diet life coach, I really um, see my role as being a guide, a partner, helping somebody who's stepping into the intuitive eating process in their, whether it's, you know, in their recovery from an eating disorder, um, years of chronic dieting and disordered eating. I feel like my role is to be by their side, to help them kind of through the process Uh, And I think when learning intuitive eating, for somebody who's brand new to it, the approach to it is the same as their their approach to a diet Um, because they're coming from that mindset and see it as a linear process with a beginning and an end. And that's really not the case. And it's 
if it's approached that way, it's going to be a challenge for them. And helping somebody learn how to reject the diet mentality, which is like the first principle of intuitive eating. And I, and it's the first because it's really the most important. Um, going through years of dieting messages and society and family and friends. and uh, But when we when I work with somebody, I really try to break down for them where some of these beliefs came from, which ones maybe held some truth, which ones are completely fabricated and, you know, have been manipulated um, by the diet industry. And, and basically, I hold belief in them until they can hold belief for themselves. So I really view myself as a guide, a partner and somebody to help you look at yourself and understand that you're not broken, you didn't come to this place out of nowhere. um, And it's not your fault. And we can get to a better place for you to food freedom, body image freedom, yeah. things like that. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's such important work. And we'll dig deeper into some of those things that you mentioned when we get into the five things here. But before we do, I want to ask you, what led you to join the Courage Club years ago? Oh, so that was, uh, okay, I'll, I'll call it one of the best decisions of my life. <laughs> and, and here's the reason. So I had lived with an eating disorder for over 40 years. Um, I told nobody. I, you know, I never shared it with anybody. I kept it to myself. Um, and this is a long time. It's a big part of my life and, um, constant self-blame, constantly thinking everything, you know, well, it's my fault. Why can't I do this? And I'm fiercely independent person. You know, I consider myself to be a hard worker and, and competent and, and all of those things. So I always thought like, I could just do this by myself. Then I was approaching the age of 50. And I'm realizing like, okay, I've really been trying to do this by myself for all these years. And I'm, I'm not really in a better place regarding my food and, and body issues. Um, and so I sought, I sought help at that point. And I found a great therapist. I found a great non-diet dietitian to work with. Um, so I started putting together my team of people. And the, the one thing that was always missing for me was I had nobody, to, I had nobody else really to talk to, like nobody in my in my circle, whether it's friends or family or you know, coworkers or whatever, um, I felt really alone. I didn't have a place to share. And I thought still I was alone in this journey. I'm like, there can't be anybody, you know, living in a body like mine who's dealing with an eating disorder. It just doesn't happen. So I started researching like support groups online. I said, there's got to be something like other people I can talk to. And I stumbled across Recovery Warriors website. Um, the Courage Club, and and then it, it had, you know, Jessica was starting a new Courage Club that was opening, and um, and I joined, and I remember emailing her before I even joined, and and said, I just want to find out, like, what's the average age group? Am I going to be the only, like, older person in this group? Because I had my own, you know, biases and and uh, my own stereotypical view of person with an eating disorder, and it wasn't a fifty year old woman in a larger body. <laughs> It was, you know, like the typical, you know, that, that, that most people have that image of, you know, 20 something young woman emaciated kind of, you know, so joining the courage club and having this community, it's like somebody opened their arms and just kind of took me in and I have made lifelong friends and the support and the feeling of validation was overwhelming. And it was just a great experience. Yeah, I don't think my recovery would have been complete without that 
without that piece. Yeah, community is so important. I've been tooting my horn about that so many times here on the podcast. The word you said, validating, there's so much power in that. Like, holy crap, there's other people that get it. And no, they don't all fit the stereotype. We are all different size, shapes, genders, ages. Yeah, it's really important to break down that stereotype. So yeah, for sure. So well, thank you for sharing your journey as a professional intuitive eating counselor and your experience in entering the Courage Club. I'm so excited to dive deeper into your wealth of wisdom here as we get into these five things Joni O'Donnell wishes she knew earlier in recovery. Number one, your body is not the enemy. And yes, it can feel like the enemy. It feels like you are in a tug of war with your body, like it's an opposing force. And we're taught this by the diet culture and weight stigma that's everywhere. It's in the medical system, social groups, it's everywhere. It makes us feel like a larger body is unacceptable and we have to fight with all our will and might to resist that. Mm -hmm. And that makes your body the enemy. But the truth is, your body is on your side. And to truly heal, you need to stop the tug of war. You got to drop the rope. So Joni, why is it so important to understand that your body's not the enemy? I think, um, and that's such a good question because it, I, I like the question, you know, why it's important to understand it. Um, because I think the understanding is um, key to kind of breaking free from hating your body. Our body is a vehicle, right? Our body is a, a vehicle that we're born into and its job is to kind of carry us through the experience of being human and having a life. And so we sometimes we don't really have that a choice of what body we're born into. And when we are viewing our body as the enemy, we're at war. Like we're, you know, we're if if this is if my body's my enemy and I keep fighting it and telling it it's wrong and saying horrible things to, you know, this this vehicle that I'm in we're setting up a war and we're both going to end up hurt. So I'll, I'll end up, you know, harming my body in some way because I, I'm blaming it for other things in my life. And it's, it's so easy to blame your body. Well, I can't do this because of my body. So if we can step back and see that our body is on our side, like we're teammates, we're allies, you know? And, and I think when we finally start to see that our, our, we, we just have this kind of, um, coming together and, and, and it becomes like a, you know, like a dual support system. So my, my mind and my body are start to work together and the, the trust comes in when, you know, like you let yourself really kind of get quiet and start to listen to your body that has been buried, right? Listening to your body and your messages and, and the cues that your body's sending through years of chronic dieting and diet culture and messaging, we have completely suppressed those cues we've like like in my head you know i could be hearing a thousand things it's like walking into like a crowded restaurant and and it's so loud like you you know your nervous system kind of just bah, kicks in and and that's how that's how our brains work when we're at con- in constant battle with our body so if we take those that time to step back and just kind of ah, breathe and listen you know like Okay, am I am I feeling hungry? Am I feeling full? Am I feeling nervous? Am I feeling anxious? Where is that feeling coming from? And then allowing yourself to sit with it and sit with your body and kind of real I mean like I'm talking kindness and compassion and you know and and once you once you begin to trust your body your body will start to respond. 
and you kind of start coming together. It's important first step is to just understand the purpose of your body and not have these expectations that are completely unrealistic. Yeah, you're you're in your body your whole life. So the better relationship you can have with it and mutual trust, like you described, the better off you're going to be, especially when you're recovering from an eating disorder. So what helps you come to the understanding in your recovery that your body is not the enemy? Yeah, so I don't I don't think it was one particular thing. Um I I this it took work, right? So this wasn't this wasn't all of a sudden I, you know, decided, okay, I'm just going to decide today. Today's the day I'm going to begin trusting my body. If only it was that easy. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, like flip a switch. <laughs> okay, body trust. Okay, that's done. Yeah. It doesn't work that way, right? So so I think it was little by little um uh, so, and it was working, working with professionals through therapy and, and working with my own coach, um, just kind of having somebody hold a mirror to me, like a reflection. So I could see the, the good things that my body is, is doing for me. And, and again, it, it's a lot of self-compassion. It's a lot of self-kindness. Um, and, and little by little, you can start to build it. But I think that, I think the important thing in, and kind of getting to that point is really seeing your body for what it is and and pulling out all the positives instead of fighting it and blaming it and and only looking at the negative things. Like for example, um, I years ago started um, a little collection of love letters to my body, and you know it might sound like oh what the heck is that? It's, <laughs> it sounds weird, but it literally I would just write a little love letter to a part of my body that I was like not feeling good about in that moment, you know, so whether it's my legs, my thighs, my arms, whatever it could be. And I would, I would thank it. I would like thank those parts of myself for the things that they were doing for me, right? Like taking me, like carrying me from place to place, walking across Europe when I was traveling in Europe, when I was younger, holding my three daughters in my arms and, you know, and actually like growing three human beings, (laughs) inside of my body. Um, those are all such wonderful, beautiful things that get overlooked and um, and we don't pay enough attention to them. No, that's beautiful. And I think that's really highlighting how your body carries you through every stage in life. And it's it feels like the enemy. It feels so awful, but it's capable of amazing things. Yeah. Creating life, holding life, taking you through wonderful experiences that you've had. There's so much possibility there. And I want to wrap this up with a quote from you that I saw on your website. And I'm going to, so this is from Joni, quote, <laughs> body acceptance is less about learning to love your body and more about unlearning all the reasons you were taught to hate it. Yeah. Now let's move on to our next thing Joni O'Donnell wishes she knew earlier in recovery. Number two, you are not broken. And this is so powerful because I know I felt broken in eating disorder recovery. And it's super common. Like you can have so many thoughts around like, why can't I eat properly? Why can't I shrink my body enough? Or mm-hmm. why can't I just recover already? Like there's something wrong with me. I must be broken. I am broken. Like that was a huge thing for me, feeling broken. And I know it is for a lot of other people too. Yeah. So what was the experience of feeling broken like for you in recovery? Yeah. So, it, you know, it's interesting. I thought, I've actually thought a lot about this and I've done some work around this myself. And I, there's some things I work with my own clients about. Um, so, so I don't necessarily think that um, feeling broken is actually a feeling. The thought 
of being broken is more of a it's a it's a thought that we have. It's not actually something we feel. If this makes sense, and I'll I'll give an example. Um, so so I think that if if we have a thought like oh I'm I'm broken as a thought, the feelings that come from that are are a little bit different. So I want to kind of break that down when I'm working with somebody. So when you say I'm broken, what are you actually feeling? Right. Cause broken isn't really a feeling. And so you have to really look at that and like, so what, what's, where's that coming from that thought that you're broken and how true is that? Like, are you actually broken or broken are, you know, are you in casts from head to toe? Are things physically broken? Um, so we're, we're talking about our brain really and, and the way we think. Um, so feeling broken or thinking that you're broken, it really kind of brings up feelings of, um, worthlessness or, you know, like I'm not, I'm not good anymore. I'm there's, I'm not good enough. I, you know, uh, I'm like a broken, whatever piece of junk and, you know, to be thrown out and, and it, the, the worthlessness and, um, lack of self-worth, I guess you can call it is, um, is really kind of, oof, it's overwhelming at times. And I think once you start to recognize, like, I'm not actually broken, that's not a, that's not a thing that we can physically be in our bodies. I mean, we can, if you fall and break an arm, but, but the feeling that we're talking about is really trying to overcome where, where those feelings are coming from. So let's like, I really dig deep on this with people you know, so when you say it, what are you actually thinking? Is it coming from a place of feeling uncomfortable in your body? Is it coming from a place of feeling like you don't fit in in the world? Is that feeling coming from messages you've been given and and constantly trying to diet and and failing and you know feeling feeling all those things? You just feel like, well, I can't believe I can't even do this one simple thing. So I think for I think the when we say we feel broken, yeah, it, it, it's really, a, it's really feeling like kind of useless or, or worthless. Shame comes to mind too, feeling shameful. For sure. Oh yeah, for sure. Right. And, um, and, and moving beyond that takes work and it takes, it takes work. It takes practice. It takes a lot of insight and reflection, um, to move past that. And I know there's, you know, there's a, the, the old, uh, story parable of of the Japanese vase, right? And and um, in Japan, if the if a vase or vase <laughs> breaks, um, instead of throwing all the pieces out, they they literally put it all back together with like twenty four karat gold, and it, and it actually becomes more valuable mm. than it was in the beginning. That's a good recovery analogy. That's recovered you lined with gold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm, and I'm pretty sure Jessica shared that with me and that's probably why it's popping up and I may not have even told it correctly. <laughs> She's got all the analogies. She loves parables. <laughs> right. So, so I, I think, I, I think, you know, to somebody who's saying I feel broken, um, I would want them to know that broken is, is, is repairable. It's not, it broken isn't a permanent state um, that you're going to be in. And, um, there's plenty to, you know, plenty of places to go from there that can really help you feel better about yourself. Yeah. It's, it's a thought first and foremost, and we don't always have to identify with our thoughts or take them as truth. And if you do feel broken, just the hope that, Hey, broken things can be fixed and they can be better than before. I think that's a really helpful analogy. And also there's this, the concept of inherent self-worth, I think can help 
people when they feel broken. Yeah. What are your thoughts on inherent self-worth? Is that something that you came to discover in your recovery or that you work to help other people discover when you're working with them? Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, it's something, it's something that it came to. It wasn't something that I um, necessarily held, but the way I feel about it and the way I work with my clients is I firmly believe that we have all of this self-worth, like it's, we, we, it's there, we have it, we hold it inside of us. We just don't know how to get to it or how to kind of like help that bubble up to the surface. So it actually is, is helping us instead of hurting us by, you know, by kind of being in the shadows. Right. So I think um, when I, when I'm working with a client, I like to really separate from some of the food and body work that we're doing and talk about other parts of their life and things, you know, bring in things that do make them feel important or other, you know, their work, um, their, you know, uh, relationship with their children, their parents, their friends, um, the community, you know, volunteer work, things like that, that bring those feelings of self-worth in and, if we can, you know, kind of separate them sometimes from all the food and body stuff, we realize that, you know, I have a whole life outside of this, outside of this one issue that I'm dealing with. And I think, you know, it's, it's funny. I've heard um, a couple of my clients say to me, you know, I just wish I could take a whole year off and just go someplace by myself, you know, and, and do all this work. But we know that life, life happens. Life is with us. We can't, escape it. We can't run away from it. And so when we can start to recognize that there are so many other positives and so many other um, areas, whether they're tiny or, you know, monstrous um, things that we're doing that can really help us feel good about ourselves. I think that's where, that's where the beginning of self-worth starts to come from and realizing that we're not any less than anybody else in the world. Everybody has their own place and and my self-worth comes from me being here right now talking to you because this is a place I worked hard to get to. You know, I definitely feel worthy of being here, even though I admitted to you prior that, you know, like, oh, I'm kind of nervous <laughs> about this interview. I've done a couple of podcasts before, but never on like the this end. Yeah, you're the you're the solo star today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. And I think I like how you bring up like recovery is just as much about the food and body as it isn't like you have to tackle the food and body and tackle things deeper and bring it all in together because yeah you are more than your eating disorder and I like how you tie that into self-worth like that can show you that you're worth more you you are worthy and that helps people find it yeah and we're so much more than our struggles with food and body like we're so much more than that mm-hmm. absolutely yeah and it, your eating disorder doesn't define you it doesn't mean you're broken you are more than that Exactly. So this brings us to our third thing that Joni O'Donnell wishes she knew earlier in recovery. Number three, diets don't work. Think of how many times you've tried to stick to a diet only to break it. And then think of how you beat yourself up for that. I know I've been there. But what if you aren't actually the problem. The diet is. And it's amazing how well like the diet and weight loss industry manipulates you into believing that you're the problem, but you're not. Mm. And as we get deeper into this, I think it's really important to specify right off the bat what we mean by diet. A diet is anything where you are trying to intentionally shrink your body either through what you consume or how you move your body. Um, Because a lot of people are like, 
oh, it's not a diet. It's a lifestyle change. And it's like, honey, if you are restricting your food (laughs) to to try and lose weight, that's a diet. So it's really what we're talking about here is intentional weight loss. And Joni, can you explain just exactly why it is that diets don't work? Yeah. First of all, diets don't work because they're not sustainable. It's just not, it's not, it's not a sustainable way to live your life um, by restricting food, um, you know, wh- whatever, whatever the case may be and whatever your behaviors may be to get to that point of intentionally shrinking or changing or, um, you know, kind of, um, or over-exercising or, or whatever to get, to get to a certain point and, and putting all of your eggs in this one basket of, I have to change my body to do all the other things in my life that I want to do. And that's, that's the messages that we're told. Right. And so, and I always say this too, Andrea, and you had just kind of talked about this, like if, if diets worked, if diets worked, I would have not gone on a single diet since I was 10 years old when I was put on my first diet, right? Then it would have been over. Okay. I've gone on a diet. It worked and I can go live the rest of my life in peace and happiness, right? It doesn't work that way. And I think when I say they're not sustainable is that our bodies require certain, you know, uh, certain amounts of nutrition, certain certain amounts of food to make the energy to get us through the day. And when we are restricting our food, it's, it's, this is not only just about the food, right? So, so we're restricting food. So our bodies are now getting the signal, like our brain is getting the signal, like, oh God, famine is coming. Right. And, and our, and we, and our bodies physically, like physiologically, biologically start to start to kind of like hold on and, you know, save up, store fat, um, and, and waiting for that, we're waiting for that time. Like, okay, so I have all this extra, I'm going to, I see the food intake is, is getting lower. Let me hold on to this. So it's actually like the opposite happens of what you want to happen. So yeah, you, you, yes, you first start out restricting, you might lose some weight. Most likely you probably will. At what cost? Right. At what cost is that to to your body and your mind? And I think the I think the emotional detriment of dieting is so harmful. Right. The psychological we're setting ourselves up for failure because we know that at some point the diet we can't sustain that. So same thing I said earlier, like intuitive eating. When people view it as a diet, they think like, okay, there's a beginning. I'm starting on Monday. And, you know, six months from now, I'll reach this point and then it's over. And then I can just go back to, to the way I was living. And 95% of people who go on a diet to lose weight will regain that weight, most times plus additional weight, you know, over the next, you know, two years or so. Um, and, and we know this, we know this statistic and we know that this is, this is what happens with dieting. So I think, um, when I say dieting doesn't work, it's because it doesn't work yeah. <laughs> for, for the goal that you're looking for. Right. Cause when we start a diet, we're like, okay, why, why do I want to get my body to this size? And that's where we have to start. So, you know, say it's because, well, I want to go hike up this mountain. Okay. So how can you make that happen without having to shrink your body. And it's, it is possible. Like our bodies can do amazing things no matter what size they are. Yeah. Um, you know, and health, health is not like weight is not a complete determination of health. And we, we know all the research that's coming out 
to prove that. So yeah, no, like, like you're mentioning, like, there's there's research there. And there's research around the fact that diets don't work in terms of long term weight loss. And I think that's part of like, how people get so sucked into believing that they are the problem, because you start the diet, you lose some weight at the beginning, that's that's pretty normal. And then it becomes hard because your body wants food. It needs food. It's telling you to eat. You stray from the diet. And then it's mm-hmm. it's so easy to be like, well, I, you know, here's the rules set out for me. Here's what the diet says I'm supposed to eat and do. I didn't do it. I'm the problem. And people are just so wrongfully led to believe from the diet industry, from diet culture and people around us that, no, it's you who didn't live up to the diet. You're the problem, but it, it's the diet that's failing us. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, what are some things that you would want someone in recovery to know about the underbelly of the diet industry? Because there's a lot of shady things going on there. Yeah. You know what? There's so many things. And I think um, I I wasn't even aware of them because for so many years, I was part of it. I was part of, you know, the diet culture and joining one program after the other. And, you know, the list goes on. You name the diet. Same. I've like, I've been on it, check mark. Um, And, and, I was even, I was unaware of, of all of the, um, really intentional manipulation that has been created by the diet industry over the years. And, and even, even to the point of, um, you know, male dominated (laughs) companies say who are creating these, these diets, uh, are putting out these images of women that are, that are not realistic and goals that are not sustainable. When I read the book Anti-Diet by Chrissy Harrison, that book um, and the research that she put into it, I'm grateful to have that that background. Um, as I started reading all of the ways that this diet industry for profit, and that's their only goal is profit, has manipulated the people in our country and around the world into believing that there's something wrong with us, I got so angry. I mean, I, I was like four pages in and I was fuming. I'm like, oh my God, this is this is pretty awful stuff. And you just felt I felt like used. And and again, I, I'll use the word manipulated again because that's a it's a terrible feeling to to feel that. Um and so so I think the biggest thing is to think about is is why the diet industry exists and is solely for profit. And I, I really believe like certain programs, you know, like the ones, the major dieting programs that are out there, um, their whole model is built on returning customers, right? They know damn well that it doesn't work and they are counting on that. Oh yeah. They're counting on yeah. that, especially because, you know, and they'll say like, okay, welcome back to, you know, whatever program this is. How many times have you joined? Okay. This is my seventh time joining this, but they're, they're counting on that. So their whole model is based on, you know, keeping us in this, in this vicious cycle of dieting, because if, if it was just a one and done, they, they would not be existing anymore. Because people would go through the program once and they'd never return. And that's just not the case. And it's and it's set up that way intentionally. It is. And I'm so glad that you are shining light on that. And what are some ways that diets show up in ways that you wouldn't expect? Like I know, as I mentioned at the beginning, some people, I know people who insist that something they're doing is not a diet, but it is a diet. Like there's things like, oh, like intermittent fasting is not a diet. It is though, or, or keto or like eating healthy. Like what are some 
labels or terms or things that people can look out for that might be a diet that they might not realize? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and um, and I, I won't I can't even name them all because there's so many. <laughs> uh, but I think I think some of the some of the ways that diets can show up is just you know you use the word labels, right? And, and so perfect example. My husband and I were just walking through Costco yesterday picking up some stuff, and um, you know right away he turned around. He's like, "Oh, look at this new granola. It's keto." And I just looked at him. I said, "You know, that's like." diet culture, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, we, we had a laugh and we talked about it. Um, but it's just like, it, yeah, it shows up and that's not even, that's not even hidden, right? They, the labels they oh, it's put, right out there. Yeah. <laughs> right. They could put a label on anything, um, to make it sound like it's, you know, healthy or good for you. The other ways that it shows up, I think, um, are, are, are sometimes they're subtle, right? And sometimes you're, um, just out, you know, talking with a friend, um, you know, or, or out, you know, for drinks with a couple of friends and somebody just might say, you know, like, oh, I'm, I, you know what, I decided I'm just going to eat clean. And so then when that conversation starts, um, so it's, it's these, you know, like, um, you know, whole 30 or, or like you said, intermittent, intermittent fasting, they show up in ways under the guise of, um, new fangled health or like a new way to, yeah. you know, to kind of get yourself healthy and, and mind, body, spirit. Yeah. Or wellness. Like wellness is a big word too. Oh yeah. yeah. Like wellness culture, wellness culture and diet culture kind of go hand in hand. They do. Yeah. You know, and, and <laughs> right. And, and, and we've been, we've been kind of sold some snake oil along the way, you know? So, so as far as diet culture showing up and how to look out for it, um, look out for things that make promises that are not like not real, like are not sustainable or not achievable. Um, right. It's like, it's like a false God. Uh, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't hide so well anymore because it's everywhere. So just look out for Just look out for those misleading labels. Yeah. No, it's so sneaky. It is a snake oil type of thing. Yeah. And that's a perfect way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> so as we wrap this up, Remember, diets don't work. You are not the problem the diet industry is. It is yeah. working. It no, they know they don't work and they're working to manipulate you. Yeah. So thank you, Joni, for breaking that down further and sharing some insight into why diets don't work. And now let's move on to our fourth thing that Joni O'Donnell wishes she knew earlier in recovery. Number four, perfect doesn't exist. So perfectionism is a really common struggle with people experiencing eating disorders. Um, you could feel like you, you got to be perfect at everything. You have to have the perfect body. That's what you're striving for with your eating disorder behaviors. Like You have to eat perfectly or exercise perfectly. And then even outside of that, it can extend to like, you got to feel like you got to get the perfect grades or perfect feedback at work, approval, approval from others, a pat on the back. Mm -hmm. But really, these things are not what define your worth. Yeah. Um, so Joni, what are some ways that you strive for perfection when you were experiencing eating disorder? Oh God. Um, so, so yeah, so perfectionism is definitely <laughs> an area that I had to work really hard on and it's, and still, you know, still to this day, <laughs> and I even mentioned to you before we started recording that I, my approach to sitting with you today for this interview was you know, to kind of go through, like make some notes for myself and, um, going through them, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to answer. I'm going to write out all my answers. So I'll, I'll have 
uh, the perfect thing to say, um, you know, and I'll, I'll succinctly summarize it or however. And I realized I had already handwritten like six pages of notes and I was only on my first thing <laughs> of, of what we're talking about today. So I literally scrapped it all. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to show up and talk because this is the work I do. It's, it's me. It's what I know. Um, so, so how perfectionism showed up for me early on, um, it's just like in a, in a million different little ways. Um, as far as my food and, and body and that kind of work, um, in dieting, it shows up for me. Like if I was on, you know, like I'd say a, one of those programs, um, I would be asked to track my food. You can name names, by the way. If you want to name and shame, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sure. Okay. Okay. So yeah. Okay. So, so let's go to Weight Watchers because that's, you know, that's been my on and off for forever. Um, but my last, my last stint with Weight Watchers was before, was what kind of like prompted me to go into recovery because I was trying to be perfect. And by perfect, I meant that I tracked every single thing that I ate to the point where I was it, like, all I ever thought about was, was food. I would wake up. What am I eating today? Okay. What am I, what are my plans later? So I know what I have to eat now. You know, what am I going to, what am I going to cut down on to make sure that I have enough points for this thing on Friday? And, and I was, I, when I say that I was perfect at it, I was, I was perfect at it to the point of really making myself very unhealthy. Um, and I, I set myself up to be in a place where I can't fail. Like, so when we, when we're expecting perfection, there's no, you know, gray area. It's just black and white. And, and when you kind of fall off of it, off of that like pedestal of perfection, it's devastating. And it feels like, like this wave of failure, you know, has just washed over you. Um, so, so I think, yeah, yeah. it can be really harmful. It can be really harmful in that way. Um, and I think for me, it was just not accepting anything less than, right? And at what cost? And so if that meant some of my older eating disorder behaviors were needed to come into play to meet this certain expectation on Saturday mornings when I had to step on a scale in front of a stranger and be weighed, oh, I mean, you know, to get to that point because I needed to be perfect the harmful behavior started to come back. And, and I realized like, okay, this is not, this is not sustainable. It's not healthy for me. It's not how I want to live my life anymore. Um, and so I, I had a mentor who I've worked with, um, who she said, you know, just start to accept C work. And I'm like, well, okay, what does that mean? So <laughs> you had mentioned grades, right? C's get degrees. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right. C's get degrees. Right. <laughs> so, so, you know, if you're working towards something and, and you, you know, instead of getting an A plus, like a perfectionist would expect to get, and you get a C, it means there's, it really doesn't mean any di- anything different. You're still passing and you're still moving on. Right. I love that you said C's get degrees. I hadn't heard that one before, but that's exactly, that's exactly right. You can get a degree from a college with a C, with a straight C C grade, 
And on the outside world, uh, uh, there's no difference. And no one's going to ask. No one's going to check your grades in the real world. Yeah. (laughs) No one's going to ask. Yeah. No, thank you for bringing that up and like, and explaining why that's harmful because I think, you know, on the outside, it's like, well, what's wrong with getting great grades or getting approval or doing something perfect? Like, what's wrong with that? Well, there's nothing wrong with that in, in and of itself. Like, if you value achievement, you can still achieve things. But when you put your whole self worth and well being into it and can't accept anything other, that's the problem. Right. And, I like how you're talking about like, you know, it's black and white thinking. It's all or nothing. And it's the the middle ground. The C's get degrees, right? That's how you can break free from perfectionism. And I have seen um, a phrase that you use on your website as well and in some of the work that you do that I want you to share the inspiration behind and what it means to you. And that is, quote, I'm the perfect amount of me. So tell me about that saying. That's really, really nice. Oh, I, you know what? This is a, I think this is a great story because it, it all goes back to kind of Courage Club is where it kind of originated. And what it means is that, you know, in this world where, you know, you're comparing yourself to everybody else and, and sometimes never feeling good enough. Um, if you really just come back into yourself and realize like, you know what, I'm, I'm the perfect amount of me. It, it, it just feels, it feels like self-accepting and, how it originated um, is there was um, a member of Courage Club and I who who had become quite close friends, and we were talking outside of Courage Club one day, and she had said to me, oh, "I just feel like I'm too much. I feel like I'm too much, or you know, not enough, or you know, too much for some people, not enough for these people, um, you know." And then we we had you know started thinking like, "Yeah, well, you know, sometimes we feel like we're too big, or too this, or too that." And I just said to her, and it just kind of came out naturally. And I said, you know what? You're not any of those things. You're just the, you're the perfect amount of you. And, and that kind of just stuck, you know, I'm like, and I, I, I say that to everybody, you know, like you're, you're the perfect amount of you. That's all there is to it. You don't have to be more than you don't have to be, you know, better than, um, you're, you are you, you're uniquely you, and you're the perfect amount of you no matter your size, your shape, your status in life or anything. Um, and it just kind of stuck and it stuck so much that that's, I actually, that's the name of my company. And so I, when I started my own business, the name of my actual company is perfect amount of you. Oh, nice. LLC. <laughs> right. So that's, um, and I, and I operate like under Joni O'Donnell coaching is like, is kind of like how I do business, but, um, but that, yeah, that's, that's my, that's my company name. And I love it. Like sometimes it'll, you know, I'll get something in the mail <laughs> addressed to perfect amount of you. And I'm like, oh, I just love that it's out there. <laughs> that's, that's how it originated. And I think that's a message for me. I try to, you know, incorporate that and, you know, with the, with that little phrase, uh, with that quote. I love it. I love that that is a Joni original. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So remember, dear listener, you are the perfect amount of you. Mm -hmm. Just like Joni says, I'm going to remember that one for (laughs) sure. And remember that when you are striving for perfectionism, like you'll never really get there. The goalpost always moves and you feel like you're just in a never ending race to get to these arbitrary standards that really just harm you in the end. But you are Mm -hmm. already the perfect amount of you. Mm-hmm. So now let's move on to our last thing that Joni O'Donnell wishes she knew earlier in recovery. Number five, you are not alone. 
while your journey and your story is uniquely your own and there are things that only you will understand, there are also countless other people who have walked a similar path. There are millions of people that struggle with disordered eating and help from other people is out there. And it's actually an essential part to finding your way to a strong and active recovery. And there are so many different resources out there that can help you see that you're not alone. So Joni, what was it like for you trying to figure things out on your own before you found help from others in recovery? Yeah, it was um, it was frustrating, Andrea. Um, I felt like I was kind of banging my head against a wall um, and or, or like screaming out loud and nobody could hear me because I didn't know that other people were feeling the same thing as me. Um, although I think I did know it, I just didn't know where they where those people were. I didn't know how to connect. So feeling alone is um, it's scary, and it feels like you know you're just kind of off on this path, and you don't really have any direction. And you know, you, I, I made a lot of mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes along the way because I didn't have anyone else to kind of like check in with, and or you know have an accountability partner. Or, um, you know, just somebody to say like, hey, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And I, I see you. And, you know, I'm kind of in that spot too. Let's do this together. And I'll never forget the moment I went to my first support group, seeing people talk about their experience and being like, holy crap, I'm not alone. Because it eating disorders are so isolating. They're so isolating. And so to yeah. shine a little light on that and have a little connection with others, it it makes a world of difference. Mm-hmm. And I know for you, a big part of sure. finding connection and seeing that you aren't alone in recovery was through the Courage Club. So could you share a little bit about yeah. how things changed once you joined the Courage Club and saw that you weren't alone? What role did that play for you in your recovery? Yeah, it played such a huge role in my recovery. Um so just, just even like right from, right from the very start, uh, you know, cause people would share and open up and, and post things. And Jessica was wonderful about, you know, sharing some different activities and reflections and things that we could work on, um, you know, just coming, kind of coming together. But for me, it was just all of a sudden there was this like sea of people <laughs> around me and, and I was like, oh my God, I've been through the same, like, I felt the same way. I've had the same experience. Um, you know, and whether that goes back to some of our childhood experiences that maybe were similar, um, you know, or similar thoughts and feelings around food and our bodies, it was just so validating and it was so comforting, um, and it was so uplifting. So, you know, through my recovery, you know, working with my own team, you know, getting from one place to the other and, and to the other side of this, um, you know, that's, that's all, that's fine. And that was insanely helpful. I can't, I can't, you know, discount any of any part of my recovery team process. But once I found the courage club and got involved with, you know, other people, and we could kind of really just like, we're cheerleaders for each other. We cried together, we laughed together. Um, You know, I mean, endless, endless emotions, and it was safe. And I think that's the biggest part for me. Not only was it finding group support, it was a safe place. And it was a just, just, um, I would, you know, enter into the, <laughs> the arena of the Courage Club. And, you know, we learned how to share our gratitudes and, you know, just share experiences with one another. It was, I was not afraid to share. You know, and of course, we're always in this vulnerable spot. 
but I didn't feel that I was going to rip myself wide open and get put down for or laughed at or judged, right? Judgment-free zone completely. That's so beautiful. I'm so glad that it was a safe place for you. And I think that is so important because it's vulnerable to talk about these things. And you also mentioned in there your team, your recovery team. So we we had the Courage Club on your team. What other resources were on your team? Yeah. So, so you know, I consider myself really fortunate. And I realize, you know, like I'm, I'm coming here from a place of privilege that I was able to do this for myself. Um, but I found, I went out and found, you know, I got my own therapist and she's wonderful. Still with her to this day because it's that important part of my life, right? Um, and, and she helped me kind of like, really dig into, you know, where is this coming from? And, you know, when I first started talking with her, it was all about, you know, it was all, I was talking all about weight and my body um, and food. And she said, okay, let's take that and put that over here because we're going to talk, we're going to, we're going to work on all the other things that kind of like contributed to, to these issues. Um, So let's just put that over there. And I was like, wait, what? I couldn't even understand. <laughs> like, we're not gonna, we're not, you're not gonna give me a plan to follow and some structure. And and then I also found my own um, registered dietitian to work with, who's a non-diet registered dietitian. And I found her on the Health at Every Size um, directory years ago, and she just helped me tremendously as well. Um, I remember our first meeting, and my expectation was that okay, she's gonna give me a meal plan. And I'm going to kind of go from there. And that's not what happened. It, it, you know, it was the same kind of like, you know, exploration into my eating patterns. And, um, and she was the first person ever in my life to say to me, you know, I think the issue here is that you're not eating enough. Mm. And that literally knocked my socks off. I just stared there. And, and I actually started to cry a little bit because um, nobody had ever said that to me ever. And I've only ever been told the opposite, you know, like stop eating so much. And, and the truth was nobody ever asked me about my eating patterns or my eating behaviors. You can't tell by looking at someone. You really can't. No, no, you can't. And, and that was the truth. Like I just a hundred percent was not eating enough and, you know, still, you know, doing restriction and, and, you know, which would lead to binging and all the other stuff. Um, and so, so finding these two women to work with was crucial. And then the other part of my team is, you know, my, my husband and my three daughters who, you know, also, I mean, they, you know, my daughter, my husband and I have been married for five years. So, so he's kind of newer in in my life. And, but I, I, you know, it's, this is funny because our very second date, we talked all about food and body stuff. And I, I just like, I, like it was felt like there was a safety thing, right? So safety thing with this person who I'm really just kind of getting to know, um, just pouring myself out, you know. Um, so so having that opportunity to have somebody like that, and and also and he's a psychologist, and you know he kind of you know helped me <laughs> on this path too, you know to you know helping find the right people, and then um, and then my daughters who lived with me my whole life, who I you know feel terrible sometimes that I you know, had them growing up in this environment with me constantly dieting, constantly putting down my body. I, you know, all the, all the awful things that they heard me say about myself and, um, you know, and all the harmful things they saw me, you know, doing at home with food restriction and things like that. So when I, when I 
finally sat and talked with them and let them know, you know, about my eating disorder and, you know, and where I am and and where I'm headed. Um, nothing but love and support and, um, you know, all, I mean, all along the way, you know, to, to helping me create my website and listening to like a million different renditions of things that I wanted to write, <laughs> just full support and love unconditionally along the way. And, um, you know, I was afraid to share those things with the people that were closest to me. Um, you know, and then little by little, you know, once I, once I started to share and I'm putting my website up, um, and I'm like, well, I, I'm telling my whole story here on the website. So I, yeah, it let gets me start easier. Sharing. Yeah. Let, let me start sharing with other people. And so, so my team is, is bigger now and it's, um, you know, but there's different, there's different levels and there's different amounts of what I, you know, share with certain people, you know, just because, you know, you have to keep, you have to keep your boundaries and you have to be safe. And if you don't feel safe and sharing, then then the person who you don't feel safe around doesn't really um, have a right to know. Absolutely. Yeah. And like you were saying about the Courage Club, like every member, person, resource on your team, you want to feel safe with or ad- adjust your boundaries as needed. So thank you for breaking down your team. It sounds like a solid one. And I want to invite our dear listener to take a moment and think about who's on your team now. Maybe it's a resource like the Courage Club. If not, you can sign up for the Courage Club waitlist. And, uh, you know, sometimes it doesn't always have to be like something where you get a lot of people involved. And I'm always trying to be mindful of people who are like more introverted, I guess, or like less social. Like if you don't, if that feels like a big thing for you to be super involved with lots of people or even one person, like you can start small. Connecting with others and seeing that you're not alone can come from like you're doing it right now, listening to this podcast, listening to Joni share her story. That's showing you that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, following uh, social media accounts that are focused on recovery, th- that all counts. That shows you that you're not alone. And you can take steps towards creating whatever type of team feels right and authentic for you. Yeah. So these are our five things. I want to thank you, Joni, for sharing your wisdom and insight today. And before we leave, can you let the listeners know how they can stay in touch with you? Yeah, sure. Um, well, you can you can reach me through my website, which is uh, www.joniodonnell.com. I'm on Instagram. I'm. I'll, I'll say this though, with with a clarification, I'm not a real big social media person. <laughs> um, so, but I do I do I do have an Instagram account, um, and it's at um, joni.odonnell.coaching. But through my website, you know, you can contact me directly and I'm more than happy to talk to you to, you know, if anybody has any questions or even if it's, even if you just want to kind of chat for a few minutes and, you know, get some clarification around something, you know, I do offer, um, you know, one-on-one coaching with people, um, you know, I do offer an intuitive eating class. Um, so those are the places you can find me and, um, Yeah, and I'll be around. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And let's review our five things that intuitive eating counselor Joni O'Donnell wishes she knew earlier in recovery. And they are, number one, your body is not the enemy. Number two, you are not broken. Number three, diets don't work. Number four, perfect doesn't exist. And number five, you are not alone. Well, my warrior friend, thank you for having the discipline to listen in. If you found this episode helpful and know somebody in recovery who could benefit from its inspiring message, please share this show with them. It would mean the world to us at Recovery Warriors if we can get our cause out to more people struggling with an eating disorder. 
So if what you heard today was helpful, share the show with another warrior or anyone on your treatment team. You can do this directly from your podcast player or send them over to recoverywarriors.com. We have a goldmine of free resources there for all stages of recovery. And until the next episode, may compassion light the path you are on and courage keep you on it. You totally got this warrior.